Hi there again, everyone, and welcome to a special Encore presentation of the Three Point Podcast. Our threesome includes the youngster, Jared Fattel of Grand Valley State University and Fox 17 TV in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our middleman is Matt Burns of ESPN and the SEC Network in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm the old fella, Ted Fattel of Sportsnet Michigan and Z92.5 Radio. Our partners include Advanced Elevator, The Corona Connection, Card Service Michiana, Rivals Taphouse and Grill, Shared and Auction Service, Promec Engineering, along with our online syndication teammate, Sports Radio Detroit. Subscribe and listen in on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and all the other big podcast hosting sites. Hit us up with your comments and questions on social media at 3 Pod. And on this episode, we have some fun interviews we did with Ryan McGee back from episode 32 and John Feinstein from episode 112. It all starts rolling right after this. Rivals Tap House and Grill is the area's go-to spot for the best in food and drink. Meet up with your friends and catch your favorite sporting events on over 20 high-def flat-screen TVs. And our 120-inch projection screen. Rivals can handle your larger, small parties and is an awesome spot to put on your fundraising events. Weekly food and drink specials including gourmet burgers, wings, pizza, homemade soup, and salads. Rivals also stocks a large selection of craft and domestic brews. Rivals Tap House and Grill, the official gathering spot of three-point podcast located on the corner of Shiawassee and M21 in Corona. 85, 90, 95, 100. Looking for items to buy or sell? Look no further than SheridanAuctionService.com. We will solve your problem. Bring Sheridan Realty and auction your items and we will market them all over the country and get them sold. If you are looking to buy items, we can help with that too. Call today, 989-720-SELL. It's fast, easy, and we get results. SheridanAuctionService.com. Buy or sell, we'll get it done for you. Call 989-720-SELL. You'll do better with Sheridan. All right, guys. Well, uh, now is as good a time as any to get to our, our guest tonight. We we have a treat for our listeners. He's an ESPN senior writer, but but man, he's he's really all over the place. He writes for ESPN.com. Uh, I see him down here in Charlotte when he fills in on the Paul Feinbaum show. I saw that he he wrote and well contributed to Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s book, Racing to the Finish. Got a radio show with Marty Smith, Marty McGee. That's a Saturday mornings on ESPN Radio. And uh, you guys got a new new show coming that's going to be airing on the SEC Network, Marty and McGee talking season with all the football coaches from the SEC. Uh, Ryan, what what don't you do? <laughs> uh, well, listen, you know the deal, young man. If uh, you don't say no, say would you like to do so and so? The answer is always yes, because if you say no, then someone else might say yes, and then they won't call anymore. <laughs> so no, yes, sir. I'm, I'm really really fortunate that I get to I get to do a lot of different things and. Um, to work with my buddy Marty, who's been a friend of mine for almost 20 years now, and uh, yeah, we're excited. We're, we're going to be doing going to be doing a lot of TV this fall on SEC Network, and this talking season, these these coaches specials kind of kicked that off. And uh, we are as surprised as anyone that anyone would, would let us just sit there and talk. And uh, you know, we we managed to uh, break down barriers, and we're rednecks on ESPN, so we'll <laughs> take whatever we can get. Weren't you the original redneck at ESPN? Yeah, yeah, I was. In fact, I tell the story all the time. The reason I became the NASCAR guy, um, I started at ESPN right out of college as a production assistant uh, back in 1994. And I always tell Jeff Gordon that I owe him everything because my first week on the job, he won the inaugural Brickyard 400. Wow. And suddenly NASCAR was cool in the building. And at ESPN, 
20, almost 25 years ago, there were only two Southerners in the entire company. It was me and Reese Davis. <laughs> really? Uh, he, he was from Alabama and I was from North Carolina. And when they found out I was from Rockingham, they were like, well, you know a lot about NASCAR, right? And I'm like, yeah. And I don't think I knew as much as they thought I did, but I knew way more than they did. So, uh, so it worked. So with NASCAR, as I don't really watch it that much. What's something that goes into like a NASCAR event or a race, like some nuances that I wouldn't notice just as a casual watcher? Well, it's just there's so much more to it. You know, you always just kind of roll your eyes when somebody says just go fast and turn left or whatever. But <laughs> yeah. there, there's it is. Um, you go to a race shop, and I think people assume that all the, the race headquarters, racing team headquarters here in the Charlotte area are like, you know, the barn in Days of Thunder. And the reality is is that they're clean rooms. I mean, they look like what you see when you're watching a documentary about NASA building satellites. And there are literally rocket scientists that work on these race cars. And so there's so much more to it than that. And plus, just the enormity of the event, you know, any – Regular old Sunday afternoon, you know, uh, Cup Series race, whether it's at Dover or Daytona or wherever, it feels like a gigantic college football game. I mean, there's Air Force flyovers, and there's thousands of people, and the logistics of how they pull it off, and, and the facilities are so big, even the small places. So that's what I – it's funny, like Bristol Motor Speedway, which is one of the smallest facilities you know, racetrack-wise that NASCAR runs on, you know, when they had the Virginia Tech-Tennessee game there just a couple years ago, you know, it set the all-time attendance record for a college football game. And, and physically, that's one of the smallest facilities NASCAR runs on. So every event just feels giant. I always tell everybody, even if you don't care a thing about it, you should go just to get a sense of, of how big every single one of those races is. What do you think, Ryan, was the turning point in uh, NASCAR to become really – it's one of the top four sports, I think. I think it's past NHL hockey in America. So it's it's one of those team sports where, you know, fans latch onto their favorite racer. Like you said, it's got the big uh, stadium atmosphere. What do you think was the one event maybe that put it into that echelon? Well, I think it was – I go back to when Jeff Gordon won the Brickyard 400. It was the first time that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which is my single most favorite sporting venue in the world, when it finally hosted – a non-IndyCar race when it hosted a stock car race, and there were 300,000 people there. And Jeff Gordon, who was born in Northern California and grew up in, in Indiana, and when he won, he's young and good-looking, and you know most of the guys looked like Dale Earnhardt, who was a friend of mine. But Dale Earnhardt was in his 40s and had a mustache and was redneck, and <laughs> Jeff Gordon was none of that. And so I really felt like that was kind of the breakthrough because it introduced basically the whole left side of the country you know, into NASCAR. And so, yeah, that's when the boom started. And it stayed there. I mean, that, that sport grew at a, a breakneck speed for 20 years, and it's it's struggling a little bit now because I think that, you know, uh, we got a millennial on the line here, but millennials don't really care that much about cars. And, you know, my daughter I have, has babysitters, and I have college-age babysitters that I have to drive home because they just cars aren't a thing. And so uh, NASCAR struggles a little bit right now with what the future is going to look like, but there's no question to me that it really started – uh, that summer of 1994 is, is when the boom time started. Speaking of millennials, one of the one of the maybe the future of NASCAR, maybe one of the guys that he recently won a race, Eric Jones. He's actually from uh, our neck of the woods where we yeah. grew up there in Corona. He's from a town right near Corona, so 
So that's kind of cool to have that local connection. But but I've seen him talk about uh, that he grew up racing all over the place. But there's a speedway, just a little dirt track in, in our hometown. It's called the Wasso Speedway. They go. Where a lot of people go. You know, there's the, the guys, the weekend warriors that take their cars out there and stuff like that. And, and it's cool to hear a guy like Eric Jones talk about Owasso Speedway and how that's kind of where he got his roots going. And, and you hear Tony Stewart, he still loves to race on tracks like that. What, what's different about racing on those hometown tracks, those dirt tracks, than racing at a place like Bristol Motor Speedway or, or MIS? Yeah, well, I tell people all the time, you know, it's like I'm, I'm a big minor league baseball guy. I, my, my next minor league ballpark will be my 100th minor league ballpark. I just love going, and that's the difference. You know, the difference is you're closer to it. It's homier. You're younger. You know, you kind of have that same mix on the field at a minor league baseball game that you have, you know, if you go to a Saturday night short track somewhere, which is you got the old guys like Crash Davis that are at the end of their career, and you got the young guys like Eric Jones just a couple years ago that are teenagers, you know, on, on the way up in their career. But it, it's the difference between going to a Detroit Tigers game and going to a Lansing Lugnuts game. You know, you, you, right. you feel like you're kind of in on something on the ground floor when you go to a short track. And, and I don't think people – People who are hardcore race fans know this, but I don't think people, just general sports fans, understand no matter where you are in the country, you're probably a pretty short drive away from a Saturday night summertime short track. And uh, that's where all these guys get started. I mean, listen, Chase Elliott, who just won his first Cup Series race, you know, the son of Bill Elliott, of course, the NASCAR legend, I've been watching Chase race since he was about 10 years old. And on, on the smallest tracks that you've never heard of, little dirt tracks around the Carolinas, and now, you know, he's a winner in the Cup Series. So that's, that's just like any other sport. It's just the difference is it's you don't play Pop Warner football if you're Jeff Gordon. You race quarter midgets when you're eight or nine years old, which is what his kids are doing now. So here, here's a great question, Ryan. So you've worked with both uh... – According to your Wikipedia page, uh, big time researcher here. But according to your Wikipedia page, you had uh, Paul Newman uh, narrated one of your documentaries, and as we know, you've worked on the Paul Feinbaum show. So, which Paul do you like more? Uh, well, it, it, I think and I think that Paul Feinbaum would not argue with me about this, but Paul Newman's the coolest dude I've ever been in the room with in my life. <laughs> it, so we did. I worked at NASCAR Media Group, which I, I always describe it as NFL films with race cars. I worked there for a couple of years, and one of the big projects we worked on was a documentary film called, titled Dale. And, uh, and we, Paul Newman, owned an IndyCar team forever, uh, you know, was famous for driving around, you know, the, the rich suburbs of Connecticut in a Volvo station wagon that he had like a Ford Cosworth IndyCar engine dropped into. And so he was a racing guy. He raced sports cars forever. And, of course, you know, starred in the movie Winning. I mean, he was a racing guy. And so when we went to Paul Newman, I approached him through his IndyCar team and wanted to know if he would be interested. And he had been friends with Dale Earnhardt. And so he, he agreed to do it. And, in fact, for free, uh, the money that we had budgeted to pay Paul Newman or whoever the narrator would be, Paul Newman just wanted us to donate that to his Newman's own uh, uh, charities. So yeah, that was that was an intimidating experience. I tell you that, but uh, but it was awesome. It, it turned out to be his last kind of big feature film project. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, we're talking NASCAR, and I'll tell you what, this is the most we've ever talked about it. <laughs> I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, and, and, and I have some more interest about it too. 
Yeah, so, well, good. Well, then I've done my job. Absolutely. I agree, and, and it, maybe it's bad, but the only thing I know, I, I know about Paul Newman, he's, you know, how much people respect him as a NASCAR driver, but to be honest, the thing that I know him most for is just, I think he voiced, like, a car <laughs> on the in, in a Pixar movie. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's funny, too, so I went out to Pixar. Uh, he was in Cars, the original Cars movie, and I was out at Pixar uh, before Cars 3 came out in theaters a year ago, mm-hmm. and I was arguing with those guys because they claim that they were the last feature film that Paul Newman worked on. And I told them, I said, nope. I said, our documentary we did was the last one he worked on. And so we, we were having a fun debate about that. Speaking of movies, where do you rank Talladega Nights? Oh, I love it. You know, and it's funny, too, because so people, people in the NASCAR world get so oversensitive about how they're portrayed on the silver screen. Uh-huh. And I mentioned the barn in Days of Thunder. You know, legend has it, it's not a legend, it's a fact, when they had the big premiere of Days of Thunder in Charlotte in 1990, people got it walked out as soon as the movie started because one of the first scenes in the movie was this barn and, and the, the, the font, the, the graphic that came up said Charlotte, North Carolina, and those guys were in there working on a race car. And they, the NASCAR people were so offended by that. Well, with the Talladega Nights premiere in the 90s, I was working at NASCAR Media Group, and I was in a theater that was full of nothing but NASCAR employees, including the president of NASCAR, Mike Helton, who was a notoriously stone-faced guy. And he was sitting in the middle, a huge dude. He was sitting in the middle of the theater. And my wife and I are just dying, cracking up, watching this movie. And no one else would laugh because they were all afraid they would offend Mike Helton. And then finally, Mike Helton busted out laughing when it got to the part where Ricky Bobby's wife announces, she goes, I do not work. You know, I'm a race car driver's wife. That's such an inside joke, you know, but it's so true. But, yeah, I, I like it. I, I got I got no problem with uh, – but some of the people in the sport get a little sensitive about how they're portrayed, but I think it's awesome. Yeah, well, obviously a parody, and, and then you got to thicken up that skin just a little bit, right? Yeah, and it, 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 it's funny. How, well, it's like the program, right, the college football film. Right. That, uh, that, that came out around the same time Days of Thunder came out. People in college football are just so deeply offended. I'm like, guys. I'm like, th- this is a movie with James Caan. It's basically a cartoon. Just, just you know, enjoy it and be glad that the sport's getting a little attention. Well, Ryan, you talked about uh, the size of some of these NASCAR stadiums or the, the tracks. And, and uh, Jared, a couple weeks ago, he went to a country festival at MIS in Michigan, Faster Horses. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of that. Yeah, and we were talking about it on one of the, the last podcasts, and he was talking about how just – how big the stadium was and everything like that. And I, I grew up going to MIS back when, back when the capacity was 125,000. Yeah. That's all I was telling them, that the, the grandstands used to go basically around that whole two-mile track. I, I, I don't know. How, why have things changed? Is it, is it just that millennials aren't into the, the racing, or do you think it's that you know, people are following NFL and NBA more? Well, it's a lot of things. And, you know, Marty and I kind of half-joke that we'd like to do a 30 for 30, like what happened to motorsports. And um, and it's not just NASCAR. It's Formula One. It's everything's taking a dip. But I think that there's a lot of reasons. I mean, listen, the when the economic crash happened in 2008, um, no sport was hurt worse than NASCAR. And the reason is because, as you guys know, it's a sponsorship-based you know, financial system, yeah. just how the whole thing is built. And so it was exposed a little bit. You know, companies said, why are we spending $20 million to sponsor a race car? Are we really getting a return on investment? So that happened. You know, there are also racetracks and, and race teams. They created a generation of salespeople that didn't have to really sell. They didn't know how to sell because the phone just rang all day. They just took orders. 
And so when the phone quit ringing, they didn't really know how to go out and drum up business and how to raise funds. And so I think that was part of it, too. And, and I, I really believe, too, you know, I know people bang on millennials all the time, but the reality is if, if a movie is longer than two and a half hours, people just flip out. This is too long. I'm in here to this is crazy. What are we doing? And every single race weekend lasts three, sometimes four days. And every single cup race lasts four hours. You know, everything this, in the season starts in the middle of February, and it, it starts at Valentine's and it ends at Thanksgiving. Everything's too long. You know, and, and, and one thing we do know about uh, millennials, and, and I think this applies to me too, is that you, you, I, you can't sit through but so much. And so attention spans just aren't what they are. So it's a, it's a really complicated um, equation, but, but the reality is that, you know, they need to look at doing some things, and they've just got to be gutsy enough to, to take some big swings. I got one more two-part question here in race, and number one, on the topic you just talked about, are they kind of in the same boat as Major League Baseball where they need to develop more personalities, more electricity with the drivers themselves? How do you see that? And then my follow-up question is, uh, I understand that you had an interesting flight in 2009 with Richard Petty from the Coca-Cola 600 to the Indy 500 and back. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, I asked the first part uh, first, which is, um, yeah, I think that they're absolutely, and like baseball, the personalities are there. It's just a matter of letting those guys be themselves. There's players that rub guys the wrong way with bat flips and funky rooster haircuts and all this other stuff. But the reality is uh, I think they could go a long way with young people. Listen, my daughter uh, grew up and was born and raised and has lived in the Carolinas her whole life, loves Mike Trout. I mean, loves him. <laughs> and she loves him because we went and saw him play one time when she was a little girl. Baseball should do a better job of promoting that guy. You know, baseball should do a better job of promoting their new you know, home run derby champion. I mean, those, those guys need to be promoted. And, listen, NASCAR is the same way. There are so many – listen, Jimmy Johnson is the, is the all-time greatest example of this. Jimmy Johnson is the least boring person that I know. He's a wild man, <laughs> and no one knows that. And the reason is because you know, he, he's just kind of whitewashed, whether it's sponsors or whether it's NASCAR itself or whether it's Hendrick Motorsports or whatever. They've never really been, let him be publicly the person that I know he is privately. And he's, a, he's, he's one of the finest people I know. He's a great father. But he also is a freaking wild man. And that should be out there a little bit. You know, Chase Elliott, same way. But no one would know that at home because by the time he goes through all the filters, sponsors and whoever – he comes off as boring. So, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. 2009 with Richard Petty, that was might have been the most fun I've ever had at work in my life. They There was an STP was sponsoring a car with Richard Petty's 43 on it and the Petty Blue. John Andretti, uh, who had driven for Richard Petty in NASCAR, he was driving the car. This was in the Indy 500. And, of course, Richard Petty owns his 43 car, famous 43 car in NASCAR. And we did the double. We met at the Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, at dawn. Uh, the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, and we flew uh, to Indianapolis, landed at the, at the racetrack, or excuse me, landed at the airport, got on a helicopter, flew in a helicopter, landed on the back stretch. There's a golf course there at, the, at IMS, and we landed, and there were golf carts waiting to take us in. And yeah, we went in and stayed for, we stayed halfway through the race and got back on the helicopter and went back to Charlotte. So I got to hang out with Richard Petty all day. I was a huge fan growing up, but the story I always tell is we landed at the Speedway. And there's two golf carts. And, and the king looks at me and he goes, well, you need to get your credentials so you can get into the garage. I go, right. <laughs> he goes, all right. He said, 
that golf cart will take you to the credential office. I go, great. And then he takes his finger and he points directly into his own face. And he goes, I have my credentials with me. <laughs> so I don't need to go to the credential office. And he jumped on his golf cart and took off the other way. So, yeah, that was the, the king was my guy when I was a kid. And so uh, to have, to, to have a, a friendship with him now is one of the most surreal experiences, as you guys can imagine. Yeah, the all-time legend, without a doubt. Yeah, that, that is really cool. I mean, the guy, growing up going to the races, the king and Dale Earnhardt were, that, that was who my dad that's all he talked about. I was one of the ones that hopped on the Jeff Gordon bandwagon. I was, I was a Rainbow Warrior when he started winning. So, so th- those are definitely some cool stories. While, while we got you on the horn, though, I've got to ask you about something. So you were talking about Marty Smith and the radio show and everything, and, and I think there's a reason why you guys are getting more airtime and everything because it's really good. You're, the radio show is awesome, the podcast, everything. I, I, I love listening to you guys. But I've got to ask you about something, the hillbilly headlines and the hillbillyisms yeah. and all that. So, yeah. I mean, we're from Michigan. You go to northern Michigan, you, you get to some – there's some hillbilly areas. There's some redneck oh, yeah. areas. It, it's not necessarily the south. I mean, we, we say all the time that uh, – um, I, I always tell the story. When I moved to Connecticut, I moved to Bristol, Connecticut, right out of college. And I remember calling my father as I was driving around in, like, Southington or Farmington or one of those towns there in, in Connecticut. I called my dad, and I go, man, there are rednecks everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was, and it's a fact. And, and when we do hillbilly headlines on Saturday mornings, uh, you know, there's no question that the state of Florida dominates the hillbilly headlines, and no one should be surprised by that. But Florida is this quilt work of people from all over the country. You know, the, no one's from Florida. They moved to Florida from New England, from the Midwest, from Arizona, from everywhere. But what we have learned is there are hillbillies and rednecks everywhere. We've had hillbilly headlines from Brazil from Germany. We had a guy in Australia the other day that burned down his entire neighborhood because he was trying to kill like a squirrel with a blowtorch. I mean, these are the things that, that we, you know, we, we get them from all over the world. So it's, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We have learned, we educate the world uh, on that fact, that there are hillbillies everywhere. Well, I know you're running short on time, and man, do we appreciate the time you've given us. But I got another follow-up question in a different sport, if you don't mind, Ryan. Sure. I know your second book was The Road to Omaha, Hits, Hopes, and History of the College World Series. I happened to catch you just by accident. It was a rain delay this year, and there was a documentary about the 1996 championship game between LSU and Miami. Now, can you paint the picture of that uh, natural moment, if you will, uh, of that final World Series game? Yeah, I mean, listen, it was the greatest moment in the history of the College World Series, and it will always be the greatest moment in the history of the College World Series. And a guy named Warren Morris, who was a local kid from Louisiana, uh, was a great high school ball player but got no scholarship offers, walked on at LSU, uh, backed up Todd Walker, who I work with now at SEC Network, and Todd, of course, played in the big leagues forever, one of the greatest hitters in the history of college baseball. And poor Warren finally was going to be the second baseman, and he broke his hand. Uh, at the start of the year and missed the entire season and then came back just in time for the College World Series and was terrible. He was awful. (laughs) And Miami at this time, this was a roster that was just packed with future big leaguers. And LSU was really good. And this was kind of the showdown to figure out who was going to be the team of the decade of the 90s. And poor Warren Morris ends up at the plate with two outs in the bottom of the last inning and his poor mother was sitting in Alexandria, Louisiana, with her head in her hands going, oh, my God, this is how my son's career is going to end. 
is striking out at the end of the College World Series <laughs> with a hurt hand. And, uh, and and Warren always says, I talked to him just a couple months ago, he always says that he felt terrible all year, and the first time he felt good in the batting cage was that morning. And he got a pitch he could drive, and he just kind of flicked it uh, over the corner in the right-hand side of the fence at Rosenblatt Stadium, which was – I said Indianapolis is my favorite sporting venue in the world. And uh, the only reason I didn't say Rosenblatt is because Rosenblatt's gone. But uh, what a great place and what a great moment. And, uh, yeah – I always know when it's raining at the College World Series because uh, my phone starts blowing up and it's my <laughs> friends because every time it rains, what they use for rain fill is to show the Warren Morris documentary. Which you <laughs> were a part of. Even if I'm not watching, I know it's raining in Omaha when my friends are going, hey, you're on TV talking about Warren Morris. Well, that's awesome, man. And I, I know, I mean, working here, rain delays during college baseball, that's something that, uh, that I've come to. There's a love-hate relationship with rain yeah, delays. Yeah, well, and Omaha, and listen, and, and the College World Series is it's so incredible and it's so amazing to go cover. But uh, you're there for two weeks. <laughs> and, you know, late afternoon thunderstorms, I don't have to tell you guys, you know, especially in the Midwest, it's just it's every afternoon. And so those two-day two games, in, or two-game days in particular, you're almost always going to hit it. But, yeah, my friends that all worked in the press box, Kyle Peterson and those guys, they always say, by the end of the College World Series, they hate my guts because they've only <laughs> done like two or three documentaries about college baseball, and I'm in all of them. So uh, so anytime they said – and they play them in the stadium. So anytime they said everybody's raining, everybody knows why hates me by the end of the two weeks because they're tired of looking at me. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, I think, what we're all just kind of waiting for to start, which is college football season. Yeah. And kind of the big the big headline uh, this week has been the whole Urban Meyer uh, scenario. So how do you see that playing out? Do you think he'll be able to keep his job, or do you think that he's going to be gone before the season well, starts? Well, my initial reaction was that he's going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but but as the, the, the longer this thing has stretched on, uh, the more I've realized he's going to be back. Um, and and once the commit once the the investigation committee announced very specifically. We have 14 days to do our investigation, which is just weird. Yeah, why do you think they did that? I, well, I just think they know they've got to do whatever they're going to do before the season starts. Okay. And so, if you go in and put a deadline on it, uh, then you know, I, I don't know. It, but but just it it all it was a week ago when they started all it was the, that Friday after the news broke that my, our buddy Brevin Murphy wrote out there, and and you know once. Once that Friday afternoon, right at 5 o'clock when everyone's getting off of work, right when that hit, that, oh, and by the way, the AD knew too. That's when I realized, okay, this is, this is a coordinated effort. You know, this is, they're rolling over on the athletic director now, and they're going to do what they can to save Urban Meyer. It, listen, you guys know this. In the end, follow the money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if the two biggest boosters at Ohio State are – the guy that owns Bed Bath & Beyond and Victoria's Secret, who's a billionaire, and then Jimmy Haslam that owns the Cleveland Browns. And if those two guys call and say, he's got to go, he's gone. But if those two guys call and say, you know what, we really probably need to keep him around, then they put their lawyers on and they figure something out. So, you know, follow the money on those deals. He might not coach the first few weeks, but by the time we hit October and the games really start mattering, I got a pretty good feeling that, that Urban Meyer's going to go on the sideline. So, in that same regard, so let me ask you this. This is something I'm I'm honestly not sure how I feel about. Do you think it's the coach's job to sort of act as, like, a moral compass for, like, the entire university, or do you think it's just his job to, you know, coach his players? And well, I think games? you're the CEO 
CEO of a multi-million-dollar corporation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that if you were the CEO at IBM or the CEO at Geico or the CEO at wherever, uh, if you were the CEO of your local home security system company on the corner, you know, it's your responsibility what the people underneath you do. It is. And, and, and if you're going to be – you know, I say this all the time. I, I'm, I'm t- talking about race car drivers. I, I've had this conversation with, with drivers before, which is they complain because their divorce is in the paper, or they complain because people are asking about the things. And I'm like, listen, you can't take the big paycheck – and you can't star in TV commercials, and you can't be on billboards and then get your feelings hurt if the public wants to hold you to a higher standard. And, and if you're the CEO of, of, of a multi-one one of the state of Ohio's biggest corporations is Ohio State football. And if you're the CEO of that, and that's what Urban Meyer is, and, and oh, by the way, you also have kind of put yourself out there over the years as the moral compass, which he has done. Then, um, then you know you you have to be prepared to uh, take the darts when the time comes, and uh, and and I don't I don't believe that he is. I have one final football question for you, and uh, we'll get ready to let you go. Uh, your alma mater, you went to Tennessee, right? Yeah. What what did you think about the whole Shiano situation and where they stand now? Well, I think that the Tennessee fan base did not distinguish itself. Um, I think that, and, and these are my people. I mean, listen, I'm an alum. Uh, I'm married into it. I married a Knoxville girl. Uh, between my roommates and my in-laws, uh, every time I speak out on this, uh, I get nasty personal text messages. <laughs> but the reality is that um, the fan base, has they have a reputation now. They just do. And um, it's not everybody, but it certainly were the people that were making the most noise. And, you know, it was everything short of grabbing pitchforks and tar and feathering somebody. It just was. And, and it was um, – it was the kind of thing that they weren't doing in Knoxville not that long ago, and now it seems pretty routine. So I like Shiano fine. I don't know if he was the right hire or not. Uh, I think the athletic director was doomed regardless. But um, but ten- the Tennessee fan base did not do himself any favors and, 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 and still won't let it go. Like even now with the Urban Meyer thing, you know, uh, almost immediately – uh, there was a group of very loud Tennessee fans that were turning this into, well, Shiano's one of his guys, so we just, you know, he probably knew about this too. It's like, just let it go. you got a new head coach, just just move on. But they just kind of, they kind of crave the soap opera in Knoxville, and um, and sometimes you're just willing to create one even when there wasn't one. Well, I know you're on the clock, Ryan. It's just an outstanding appearance. We really appreciate it. Matt, you got anything else you want to add? No, man, just uh, appreciate you taking the time out. I know you got a busy schedule. So, so yeah, we definitely appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate everything you do, and I will see you down at the office. TheCronaConnection.com knows it's great to be gold. Keep up to date on Cavalier Nation at CoronaConnection.com. Advanced Elevator Company features top expert field technicians for installation, troubleshooting, and repair of elevators, an area business leader, and a longtime huge supporter of the Corona Public Schools and a proud partner of Three Point Podcast. Rivals Tap House and Grill, the official sports bar of Three Point Podcast, are there for you. We want to be there for them. They're open for food and beer takeout, including a wide variety of craft brews and growlers. That's Rivals Tap House and Grill in Corona. 
Well, everybody likes a great deal, right? Well, go online at SheridanAuctionService.com for info on upcoming auctions. The auction house is packed with all kinds of great items. Stay up to date by checking their website at SheridanAuctionService.com. Sign up for email notifications or give Troy Crow a call at 989-720-SELL for other details. Up next, we have a very special guest, a Hall of Fame author of bestsellers, A Season on the Brink, A Good Walk Spoiled, and many, many others. The Back Roads to March is his latest, and we welcome John Feinstein to Three Point Podcast. John, hey man, we're really excited to have you on with us, and since no March Madness, it's a perfect time to, like they say, cuddle up with a good book like The Back Roads to March. Now, before we get to your book... You know, I know things are really fluid out there with this COVID-19 crisis. Just to start us off here, some of your thoughts on this crazy week. Well, it's hard to know where to begin because, it's, as you said, it's, it's so fluid and things are happening so fast, and they did happen so fast in terms of sports, uh, really starting Wednesday uh, when uh, they started shutting down conference tournaments, and then Thursday came the word, of course, that there would be no NCAA tournament, Major League Baseball shut down, NHL, NBA started it really Wednesday night, uh, and, and golf finally got around to figuring out that they needed to shut down too, um, and who knows when we're going to have sports again. I know a lot of basketball coaches uh, were talking yesterday, well, why don't we just postpone and, and reschedule in a month? Well, we don't know where we're going to be in a month or six weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks and the logistics of it would have just been too difficult i mean trust me and you guys know this the ncaa would do anything to have the tournament so it can collect its billion dollars from cbs and turner so the fact that they canceled it tells you just how difficult this situation is uh for everybody and it's it's no fun i mean people are, are talking about um you know oh, i'm gonna miss the ncaa tournament so much uh, we all will but the players are the ones who suffer the most here because they're the ones who work so hard to get there yeah, I mean, it's pretty much unprecedented, without a doubt. I mean, you and I are pretty close to the same age. You know, we were really little when John Kennedy got assassinated. Obviously, we were around with 9-11 and, you know, the, the earthquake in Frisco and a few other events, but uh, this is completely uncharted waters. Well, totally, because those other events were tragedies, and decisions had to be made about how long we weren't going to play, how long we weren't going to have sports, and, and, and then move, we moved on with our lives. And, of course, the NFL. Uh, in 63 went ahead and played that weekend, which is really difficult to believe. Uh, now, this is, as you said, is totally uncharted waters because we don't know where the end, end is going to, to be or how serious this is gonna, going to become because it seems to be getting worse and worse every day, not, just, not, not like it's saying, okay, it's ebbing now and it's slowing down and we're closer to um, either a vaccine or a way to control it. We have no idea when this is going to be over. Yeah, and I should preface this, too. We're recording this on Friday the 13th uh, in March here of 2020. I mean, this is such a fluid situation. Who knows what's going to happen by the time we get this you know, on the air. I know we want to talk about your, uh, your new book here, too, John. I'll start it off. Tell us a little bit about the back roads to March and the idea behind it. Well, it was really a labor of love, Ted. It, it, uh, I've written, uh, I think, 10 college hoops books now, and, and the first one, as you mentioned, was Season on the Brink. But when I started, first started working at the Washington Post when I got out of college, uh, covering college basketball was very intimate. Uh, you had complete access to players and coaches. You could walk into practice any day you wanted to without a court order like it seems, as it seems that you need nowadays. You could go in the locker 
after practice and obviously games and talk to players and have extended conversations with people. And you really got up to close. You really got to know people and understand their lives and their backstories. That's really not the case anymore. And I wanted to go back uh, to those, for lack of a better term, days of innocence in my life. Uh, and I knew uh, from personal experience that the kids and coaches at the mid-major level have stories to tell that are at least as compelling as those of the, the guys who play on ESPN every night and they're going to be NBA lottery picks. Uh, and I've always believed that you don't have to be rich and famous to have a story to tell. And I've written other books like this in other sports. I did a book on PGA Tour qualifying school. I did a book on minor league baseball. I did a book on the Army-Navy football rivalry. None of, none of the guys that I wrote about there were going to be millionaires and be on TV constantly. And yet they had stories to tell, and the books all did well. So I, I said to my publisher, why don't I go back to where I cut my teeth as, as a reporter to a sport that I love more than any other and see what I can find in a season traveling around to places where most people don't go. I mean, I, I did drive down a lot of back roads to get where I was going. And you go to Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, you go down back roads. You go to Farmville, Virginia, you go down back roads, believe me. But there were stories there. And I think the story that kind of sums up this whole experience, excuse me, I just hiccuped on you. I apologize. <laughs> but um, the story that sums up this experience for me was when I went to Farmville. You guys, any of you three guys know where Farmville, Virginia is? No. Nope. No. Well, you're in the vast majority, believe me. <laughs> it's uh, 60 miles west of Richmond and about two miles east of the middle of nowhere. It's where Longwood University is located. And, and the coach at Longwood is a guy named Griff Aldrich who played Division three ball, uh, went to University of Virginia Law School, wanted to coach. That was his passion. But he had $100,000 in, uh, in, in school loans to pay back when he graduated from law school. So he took a job in a law firm in Houston, became hugely successful, became a partner, and uh, was making about $800,000 a year when his college roommate, Ryan Odom, got the job at UMBC. And I know you guys are all familiar with mm -hmm. UMBC and their upset of Virginia two years ago. Right. Called Ryan and said, you know, I still have this passion to coach. And Ryan said, well, I, I've got an opening for an assistant. I can pay you $32,000 a year, which was quite a bit less than $800,000 a year. He took it, moved his wife and three kids from Houston to Baltimore. Two years later, they pull the upset over Virginia, and Ryan gets hired, uh, excuse me, Griff gets hired as the coach at Longwood. And I went down to spend a day with him, and we were they were playing High Point, and High Point is coached now by Tubby Smith, the, who won a national championship at Kentucky. And Griff said to me during the afternoon, boy, what a coaching matchup this is. Tubby with 606 wins in a national championship, and me with 12 wins. Well, that night during the game, my wife who is a, graduated from Vassar with a degree in English Lit and isn't exactly a big Hoops fan, <laughs> texted me, and she said, I forget where you are. When are you getting home tonight? So I texted her back, and I said, I'm in Farmville, Virginia. I'll be home about midnight. And the text came right back, and it said, you're having an affair. There's no such place as Farmville, Virginia. So the ch title of that chapter is, Yes, Christine, There is a Farmville. And I think that whole night experience kind of sums up what my year was like and how much I enjoyed it. So was there anything specific you were looking for in these teams that you decided to cover during these Stories. books? That's, that's, that's what 
I do. Uh, I, I love looking for stories that no one else is looking for, that no one else is going to tell. As I said, you know, it, it's everybody writes about Mike Shashevsky and Roy mm-hmm. Williams and Tony Bennett and any of the Bill Self, any of the other name, name coaches you want to uh, talk about in college hoops or Tiger Woods in golf. Tom Brady in football. I like to write stories where when you finish reading them, you say, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. That gives me great pleasure when I can do that, and that's what I set out to do. So, like, along those same lines, um, you obviously followed a team, like, for the entire year, kind of in season on the brink. If In all of history, is there any team that you really wish you could have had that opportunity to follow? You mean mean besides... Uh, uh, Indiana in 1986. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any other team that jumps out to you? That yeah, there, there are a few. I, I, I mean, obviously Villanova in '85, uh, and I, I did cover them throughout the NCAA tournament, and I did fly back with them from, to Philadelphia after they won the national championship. Certainly, Duke's first national championship in 1991 when they upset the 34-0 Vegas team, and then on a different level. Uh, Teams like um, Lafayette in in the, in in 2000 uh, mm-hmm. when they they won the Patriot League title, or or even uh, Loyola just two years ago when they went to the Final Four. And again, I spent a lot of time with Porter Moser and his players last year to find out what it was like uh, to be uh, suddenly thrust into the, the spotlight the way they were. Now, Sister Jean was the biggest star involved mm-hmm. with that team, but it was a life changing experience for really everybody involved with the school. We've talked about uh, a season on the brink a couple times where you followed Indiana around and Coach Bob Knight. This is kind of a two-part question. So Bob Knight kind of had his reunion with Indiana a few weeks ago. I'm sure you saw it, and that was that was just an awesome moment and a really cool story. I'm curious how you felt about that, Bob Knight going back and, and reuniting with some of his players in the university. But also, that movie or that book was adapted to a movie on ESPN. I'm curious, how cool is it to see one of your books become a movie? It was awful. Um, because it was such a terrible movie. <laughs> and I didn't have any control over the content. ESPN did. Uh, and they thought they were smarter than I was, and they thought they could do a better job turning my book into a movie than I could. Um, they made up characters. They made up scenes that didn't happen. Um, and, and I thought it was one of the worst movies ever made. And when people say to me, oh, yeah, season on the brink, the movie, I go, please, I had nothing to do with it. I really didn't. Um, as as far as night returning to Indiana, Indiana, I was very glad to see it. It should have happened long ago. But Bob has always needed to get the last word in, whether it's with a referee or another, or one of his players or another coach or with the media. And he spent the last 10 years trying to get the last word in on Miles Brand, <clears throat> excuse me, the president who fired him. And Miles Brand's been dead since 2009. <laughs> and that, that's the shame of it, that it took so long that he missed the 40th anniversary of his 76 undefeated team. Bob's not in great health right now. So I'm glad he did make it back and was part of that 40th anniversary for the 1980 Big Ten team. You know, we're talking with John Feinstein, and John, you know, as I mentioned, Jared's going to be hitting the trails, looking for a job in in journalism, whether it be broadcast, whether it be writing. Uh, you're really 
the preeminent expert. In fact, when we put this podcast together two and a half years ago, you know, we talked about a couple authors we'd like to get. It was either you or Mitch Album, and you beat he him one for two. <laughs> That's right. We beat beat, beat him to I've the punch. I never made up a story in a newspaper. That's <laughs> yeah. the difference between Mitch and me. <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. But when you when you sit down and you get an idea for a book. Uh, what is the process that you go through? Is it always different, no, or is it the same? I tell you there was some kind of process or some kind of scientific way I do it. There's not. Um, I've had ideas come to me in the shower. I've had ideas come to me in the car. I've had ideas come to me watching something on television or reading something. Um, it, 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 there's no, 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 no science to it at all. It's very random. Uh, this idea, really, for Backroads to March, came to me really the last couple of years because I, I do a lot of mid-major uh, games on television. I, I do stuff for UMBC. I do stuff for VCU. I do stuff for Army. I do stuff for Patriot League teams. And as I was traveling, I, I would remember I was driving to Lafayette on a, a Sunday morning uh, to do a game up there. And I thought, you know what? Even at my advanced age, I still enjoy this. I still look forward to it. I'm excited to see Fran O'Hanlon and his players. They were playing Bucknell, Nathan Davis and his players. Um, and, and I said, what if I could do a, a whole season of this? What if I could spend a year going to places like Lafayette and Bucknell and other schools like it and knowing that I would, as I said earlier, get the kind of access that I love to get when I'm, when I'm working. And so that, that that's really where the idea kind of came together, and I sat down and kind of put my thoughts on paper, talked to my publisher about it, and off we went. Wow. Well, outstanding for sure. You know, and you, you, you talked about it earlier on that uh, – you get excited when you're putting stories together. That's the whole process, stories. When you were a young kid, I imagine you told stories to your parents. And, you know, how did you evolve to become the author, the multimedia guy that you are? Well, uh, I, I probably did tell a lot of stories to my parents. Some of them were even true. Um, but I was sort of famous for writing long letters home from camp uh, when I was a kid uh, within my family, obviously. Hello, and, mother. Uh, I, 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 the way I evolved very simply is I was I, I was a failed jock. I went to college as a swimmer. I broke an ankle uh, and couldn't swim. Obviously, a friend of mine told me that the student newspaper was a good place to meet girls, and he was right. And but I liked it right away. Uh, I, I, I think I write like I talk, so writing has always come easily to me because I hear the words in my head and uh, fell in love with it. I covered both news and sports uh, when I was in college and fell in love with the process, as you said, and loved the storytelling. And then I was lucky enough to get a summer internship at the Washington Post when I graduated and got hired at the Post as the night police reporter at the end of my internship because there were no openings in sports. And that turned out to be a great break for me because it was like getting a Ph.D. in journalism. My editor for a year and a half was Bob Woodward. Wow. And that's where I learned a lot of the reporting skills and techniques that I've used throughout my career. Well, just an amazing career you've had so far, John, and we're really looking forward to the back roads to March. Now, 
people can pick that up pretty much. Uh, they can get audiobooks. They can go to their local bookstore. They can order it on Amazon, all the regular sources, right? Yep. It, it, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, bookstores. It is on audio. It is on e-books. So uh, it shouldn't be hard to find. And I've been telling people the last couple of days, if you need uh, something to help you deal with withdrawal from the tournament next <laughs> week, this book isn't, isn't a, a terrible way to do it. Well, in fact, your book and other books, the way we're looking at right now with, with no sports, I mean, what do we do, right? Yeah, well, I'll get a lot more reading done. That's that's not a that's that's not a terrible thing in general. Absolutely right. Well, John, I know uh, th- your time is precious. We really appreciate you breaking time out to join us here. It's been uh, very informative, and uh, we look forward to your future projects as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, that'll do it for our Back to the Future podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate us on all the big podcast hosting sites, including Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Your comments and questions are always welcome on our social media sites at 3 Point Pod. Support our 3 Point Podcast partners and tell them you listen in. They include Advanced Elevator, Sheridan Realty and Auction Company, Rivals Tap House and Grill, The Corona Connection, Card Service Michiana, and Promec Engineering. Also, be sure to check out our network friends at Sports Radio Detroit. Thanks once again to Ryan McGee and John Feinstein for joining in. We really appreciate your listenership and support of Three Point Podcast. Stay safe and bye for now.